<laughs> Merry Christmas. Thanks so much for joining us today. My name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's awesome to have you with us. And uh, man, this is one of five services that we're doing this weekend. Uh, you guys picked a great one to be at. Uh, the Vikings are playing, and I will not update the score for you. You'll have to check that out on your own. But uh, uh, here's the great news. We are up to eight degrees outside. So it is a tropical heat wave. Amazing, right? Amazing. And uh, here's the other thing. A couple of days ago, I got a warning from the weather service on my phone. Uh, it was for people living in Florida uh, that in Miami, the weather service has actually issued a warning for falling iguanas. So apparently in Florida, because iguanas are uh, cold-blooded, and when it hits a certain uh, temperature, it's like 38 degrees, which is like unheard of for Floridians. They're like, what in the world? We don't know what to do. And uh, the, the iguana's blood flows, uh, slows down to such a point that they are just literally falling out of trees. So there's a warning, uh, beware of falling iguanas. Could you imagine just walking down the sidewalk and just getting thumped in the head with an iguana? I mean, things could be worse, guys, all right? It's amazing here in Minnesota. Uh, they also had to tell them uh, the iguanas are not dead. They're simply, uh, they're just like stopped for a moment because people were picking up iguanas thinking they were dead. And they're like, man, we got to get these out of the street. And they'd put like four, five, six iguanas in the back of their car. And then they would warm up and wake up. And now you've got six live iguanas attacking you in your car while you're driving. So uh, it's great to be in Minnesota. That's all I'm saying. Uh, man, uh, when you think about the holiday season and you think about Christmas, uh, is there just a moment that captures the perfection of the season for you? Uh, maybe it's the, the kids taking turns opening gifts and as they open the gift, their, their sort of eyes fill up with tears and they just look at you and express their gratitude. Maybe that's it. Or, or maybe uh, the dinner turns out perfectly and after dinner, everybody just pitches in and cleans up the whole kitchen together. Oh, it's, I love that, right? Or um, we can make Christmas just a little too complicated sometimes when we uh, expect it to be perfect. And it's difficult to have a perfect Christmas because our families are imperfect. And yet the modern nativity scenes that we see kind of contribute to that expectation. Here's some that I found online this week. Uh, this one just looks amazing, doesn't it? Like Mary just had a baby, but she's just like, no, it's cool, guys. Invite your friends over. Let's, let's all hang out together. Uh, I love this next one. This is so, look at this, matching gold robes. Like that would ever happen, right? They're, they're literally in a barn. She just gave birth, but no, let's all put on matching gold robes. And then this one's awesome. I love this. There are so many characters on this. This dude's riding a horse. There's an elephant on one side. Uh, and this is less of a nativity set and more of like action figures because she's actually playing with them. Like, hey, let's act this out. Uh, and it's amazing. You look at some of these clean, sort of uh, sanitized versions of these nativity sets and, and you just go, man, every mom knows that if you just had a baby in a manger, you would not look like that, right? And if there was no epidural, this was not a silent night. All right, I'm just saying. And it's no wonder that as we get older and we see some of these sanitized versions that sometimes uh, we get a little skeptical or cynical during the season. And so we set out the nativity set on the doily on the mantle place, or maybe you've got a big one out in the yard and you've got Mr. and Mrs. Claus next to it. And Ricky Bobby is on the other side, right? Praying. And uh, maybe for you, Christmas is all about the music. Maybe you're a music junkie. Right? And so I just want you to know if you are a Christmas music junkie that you can only listen to Christmas music after Thanksgiving and up until January 1st. Okay? That's in the Bible. Just, uh, just trust me. Uh, for some of you, it's all about the food. 
Isn't it true that in American culture from Thanksgiving to New Year's, it's like junk food all the time? It's crazy. I can remember even as a kid, the different desserts that would surface during the Christmas uh, season that you never saw any other time of the year. It's like, where did these come from? And so we would always have fudge, uh, something called waffle cookies and seven layer bars as a part of our uh, sort of Christmas tradition. And then as adults, we're all thinking the same thing, right? January 1st, I'm getting in shape, but until then, pass the cookies. And that's uh, this, this, this mindset. And then there's the presents. Uh, if you're married or uh, if you're newlyweds, uh, just want you to know if you're dating someone, if, you're, if your spouse or your significant other says, oh, you don't need to buy me anything this year. You just, you don't need to buy me anything this year. And what's amazing is they, they seem so sincere when they say it. Like, it seems like they really mean it, okay? They don't. All right, let me just help you out, all right? You don't need to buy me anything is a phrase that one person says to another person when they're so certain that you're going to buy them something that they can say it and you'll still buy them something. In fact, I think the rule is this. The more insistent that they are that you don't have to buy them something, the more extravagant the gift should be. I think that's the rule. And yet, when you think about all of these traditions and the giving and receiving of gifts, the reason that we even give gifts at Christmas is to celebrate and remember the gift that God gave to the world. When God gave his son to the world, when Jesus came into our world, it's an unexpected gift that God gave the world. In fact, Jesus would actually put it in these words. This is Jesus talking. He says, this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Now, you have to know this is not how the pagan gods of the world at that time operated. In the first century, this is not how they operated. The pagan gods were not there to serve humanity. They were there to be served by humanity. In fact, the pagan gods actually toyed with humanity. And uh, it was basically believed that humans existed simply to please the gods. And if you didn't please the gods, too bad for you. And into that sort of mindset, this one and only God of the Hebrew people steps onto the pages of history in flesh and blood. And everything about the way that Jesus came into the world is completely unexpected. Nothing about this very first Christmas is something that you would write up. It's completely unexpected. In fact, God works in ways that we wouldn't expect. We discover this, that God works in ways we wouldn't expect. And one of the eyewitnesses, a guy named Matthew, actually writes for us a part of this Christmas story. And here's what he says. This is how Jesus, the Messiah, was born. His mother, Mary, was engaged to be married to Joseph. And so Mary is a teenager, and her and Joseph are uh, betrothed. They're going to get married. In that culture, that meant that they probably had a year-long engagement. She lived with her parents. They planned the wedding, and then they would have a week-long festival. That would be her, their wedding celebration. And so they're both preparing for this. And she's engaged to this guy named Joseph, and he's a carpenter. He's kind of a, a blue-collar guy. He's got calluses on his hands, and he's well-built from manual labor, rippling muscles. Just kind of imagine like a modern-day pastor, if you will. And, uh, and the story continues. Uh, but before the marriage took place, while she was still a virgin, she became pregnant through the power of the Holy Spirit. And Mary becomes pregnant through a miracle, and Joseph finds out about it. Now, we don't know how Joseph found out about it. Uh, we don't know if he was hanging out with a buddy at the Nazareth McDonald's or if he saw it on her Instagram story or how he found out, but he learns about it. And, and as soon as he does, let's be realistic. His first reaction is not, man, I hope she has good health insurance. 
His first reaction is, well, who the blank is a dad? That's his first reaction. And Mary tells him an angel visited her and that this is a miracle. And we know that as we continue to read the story, Joseph's not buying it. I mean, would you? That's a pretty tough pill to swallow. And so he's got a couple of options. He can either try to protect his own reputation, kind of take the story public, you know, go, go on the talk show, take the paternity test. You are not the father. Or he can break off the engagement quietly. And Matthew tells us exactly what Joseph decided. Joseph, her fiance, was a good man and did not want to disgrace her publicly. So he decided to break the engagement quietly. And so he went with option number two. All right, I'm not going to go to the tabloids with this. I'm not going to disgrace her or shame her any more than she's already been shamed. I'm just going to break it off quietly and I'm going to move on with my life. And as he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Joseph, son of David, the angel said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child within her was conceived by the Holy Spirit. And so they get married. And Luke tells us that while she was very pregnant, they had to travel to Bethlehem, that the Roman uh, Empire has conducted a census. And that means everyone has to travel to their hometown, the village that they grew up in, whatever town they grew up in, and register. And so that the, the Roman Empire knows who is a part of our empire. And this has been very difficult. It's 90, uh, just over 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem, where Joseph was from. And so now they've got to travel. Mary at this point is about nine months pregnant, really close to giving birth. And uh, to travel 90 miles may not feel like a lot to us, but you have to imagine in first century uh, in, in Palestine and in that area, in that region, to travel was very, very difficult. It was very treacherous. Uh, you were basically walking that 90 miles. And uh, we assume, based on just kind of the fact that Mary was close to giving birth, that maybe she rode a donkey of some kind, but we don't know that for certain. And so this is a, a difficult journey for them to make. And then they arrive, and there's no presidential suite waiting for them. Uh, there, there's no, nobody rolls out the red carpet and, and welcomes this new king. In fact, there isn't even room for them to stay. And so they're kind of taken to the back, kind of out of mercy, like, well, we've got this uh, cave in the back where we keep the livestock. And so that's where they take Jesus. And it's amazing. God, God does things in ways that you wouldn't expect. And you know what else? God uses people we wouldn't expect. God works through people that you would never expect God to work through. Shepherds are a big part of the story surrounding the birth of Jesus. And shepherds spent most of their time in the fields. Uh, they smelled like sheep. They slept on the ground. They had a difficult time keeping themselves uh, ceremonially clean, which was uh, defined by the law of Moses. And so uh, because they were in a profession that forced them to be dirty all the time, shepherds had no influence in society. They had no social standing. They were overlooked by those in positions of power. They were typically uneducated and made very little money. They, they were isolated from other people, and so they lived kind of a lonely life. And on the night that Jesus was born, here's what Luke tells us. He writes this, That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. And suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified. But the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The angel is announcing the birth of Jesus, and shepherds are the first ones to hear about it. 
This is unexpected. This is not the way that you would write the story if you were trying to get the, the message of Jesus out. In fact, we would expect that the, the holy people would be the ones who are invited. We would expect that it would be the ones who are the temple workers and the rabbis and the priests and the religious leaders and the Pharisees. They, they would be the ones who would be invited into this news that God had sent his Messiah. But it's fascinating that God tends to work through people that you wouldn't expect. And God wants to work through you. God wants to work through me. When you give a word of encouragement, God's working through you. When you invite someone into your home for dinner, that's God working through you. When you are present, you just show up in someone's life and you sit with them as they navigate a difficult season or a period in their life, that's God working through you. When you use your resources for others, God is working through you. When you embrace the values of God's kingdom through serving others and community and generosity, that is God working through you. And when you feel like, man, I'm not even qualified. Who, who am I that God could work through me? God wants to work through you. It's fascinating because God seems to always work through the people you wouldn't expect. And then here's what else God does. He shows up in places we wouldn't expect. Look at this story. It's unbelievable. When kings come into the world, you expect them to be born in a sort of a state-of-the-art hospital and to live in a palace. But Jesus isn't born in a hospital. He's born in a crowded cave surrounded by livestock, surrounded by potentially horses and, and sheep and cattle and donkeys. And those things smell worse than cats. And it's fascinating. And when you look at the birth of Jesus, it's pretty redneck. Jesus is literally born in a barn. I remember as a kid growing up, my dad would say that to me all the time, like, shut the door. Were you born in a barn? And Jesus is like, yeah, mom, I was. I literally was born in a barn. He's born to Jewish peasants who have very little wealth, almost no influence. We read that after the angel announced the good news to the shepherds, what do they do? They hurried to the village and they found Mary and Joseph. Now, when we think about Bethlehem, because we've read the story maybe, or we've become somewhat familiar with the Christmas story, we think that uh, we probably have some kind of a, an idea of Bethlehem. But it really, in the first century in Palestine, Bethlehem is a, is a rural town. It's nothing more than a very small village. And so they hurry to this village. They find Mary and Joseph, and there was the baby lying in the manger. Now, again, kings are supposed to sleep on nice, cushy, memory foam mattresses, right? That's what it's supposed to be. But this king sleeps in a first century feeding trough called a manger. God has a way of showing up in places we wouldn't expect. And I'm not talking about the weird places people imagine God showing up. Uh, several years ago, there was a guy who claimed they saw the face of Jesus in a pancake, right? Oh, there he is. Call the news, call the media, right? Uh, another guy said, oh, I think I see the face of Jesus in a tree stump. Now, I'm not talking about God showing up in places like that. I got to confess, I've never seen the face of Jesus or Mary kind of just show up anywhere. Uh, I do encounter an angel every day, my wife. <laughs> but God shows up in very real and unexpected places. God shows up in the midst of marital tensions. God shows up uh, in the midst of personal grief. God shows up in the midst of big life transitions. And maybe you wouldn't expect this, but God shows up in everyday, ordinary situations as well. God shows up in a Zoom meeting. God shows up in a soccer game. 
God shows up in a coffee shop to, to friends sharing their story with each other. God shows up in uh, driving our car, listening to music. God shows up in a hug from a friend, in the laughter of a child. God shows up by putting the right person in your life at just the right season of your life. God shows up and opens your heart to hear what you needed to hear in a particular moment. Sometimes God opens your eyes to see something that you've never seen before, to make you aware that he is with you. And it's absolutely fascinating the places that God shows up that you would not expect. And then because God loves you and me so much, God embraces messes we wouldn't expect. He, he looks at kind of the messiness of our world and he doesn't run away from it. He steps into it. The stories surrounding the birth of Jesus are not cute, quaint, sanitary religious stories. They're very irreligious stories. In fact, you would almost call them anti-religious stories. They're stories that break all the rules about what predictable religions are supposed to believe and supposed to do. Everyone is assuming that this Messiah, this king, is going to be supporting the religious establishment. Everything that is about the law of Moses and the temple and the sacrificial system and, and how they worship, that this king's going to come and he's going to support that and we're going to rally around him. And instead of hanging out with the holy people, the, the religious leaders and the elite and those who are considered clean, what does he do? He, he, he goes to parties. He's hanging out with people you wouldn't expect. He embraces the messes nobody expects him to embrace. In fact, Luke tells us that this is what the religious leaders think about Jesus. This is a quote from them. They say this, he's a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That's who Jesus is. He, that's their, their, their opinion of him. That's his reputation. And so their opinion of Jesus is that he's scandalous because Jesus is born into circumstances that appear scandalous. Jesus then dies under circumstances that appear scandalous. And unfortunately, because of the influence of religion over the last couple thousand years, when most people think of God, they have this sort of Santa Claus view of God. Now, here's what I mean by that. When you think about this uh, song we sing at the during the holidays and during Christmas, Santa Claus is coming to town, listen to some of these words. He's making a list. He's checking it twice. He's going to find out who's naughty or nice. That's kind of creepy. I mean, listen to this. He sees you when you're sleeping. Does anybody else think we might need to issue a restraining order on Santa Claus? That's a little creepy. He knows if you're awake. He knows if you've been bad or good. So be good for goodness sake. And when you think about that, unfortunately, for many of us, we've taken that idea about Santa Claus and we put it on God. Well, uh, I have to do enough good things and be nice and stay away from the bad things. Don't be naughty. And uh, then I can get what I need from God and get to heaven someday. And folks, here's what I can tell you. That's called religion. Religion is all about what are the things that I have to do to get to God? And yet, when this angel shows up and declares good news to the shepherds, he doesn't come to declare, hey, Jesus is starting a new religion. He comes to declare something that has happened. Religion is all about what I have to do to get to God. This angel comes and says, no, there's good news. This is all about what God has done to get to you, to come to you, to move in your direction. And here's why. Because we're all on the naughty list. We've all, we've all fallen short of God's standard. And this is a God who from his birth until his death identifies fully with us in the midst of our messes. 
And religion will tell you, well, you got to clean up your mess if you're going to come to God. But the God that's revealed in Jesus shows us that he meets us in our messes. And then he moves us forward to become everything he's created us to be. And somewhere along the way, maybe religion told you that you've made too big of a mess. You've messed up your life too much. Maybe you've messed up other people's lives too much and, and that somehow you're not enough. Somehow you don't measure up. But when God showed up in our world, in flesh and blood, it wasn't announced with trumpets. It wasn't announced with fanfare. It, nobody rolled out the red carpet. It wasn't announced to the kings and the royalty of the world. It was announced by some angels to a group of shepherds working the night shift. What does he say? I bring you good news. Not I bring you the checkbox of what you need to do in order to get to God. Not, I, 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 I want to let you know, uh, here's the things that you've got to do. And, and Jesus has come and he's going to basically uh, make sure that the sacrificial system and the law of Moses and the temple worship and all that stays in place. No, he says, I, I've got good news. And it's going to bring great joy to all people. Everyone, everywhere. It, it's, it's not religion. It's an announcement of something God has done. In 1843, a poem was written in France. And this poem was written to essentially capture the emotion of that very first night when Jesus was born. And the poet writes this, and it was so beautiful and, and captured so well the emotion of that night that it was later commissioned to be set to music. And the, the music was composed uh, several years later, and in 1855 it was translated into English, and we've been singing it ever since. Listen to some of the words of this song, O Holy Night. O Holy Night, the stars are brightly shining. It is the night of the dear Savior's birth. Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope, the weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. It is the birth of Jesus that brings a new and glorious day into the history of a weary world. And the reason that a weary world can rejoice, and the reason that a weary person can rejoice, and the reason that a weary family can rejoice, and the reason that there is a thrill of hope is because in Jesus there is a new and glorious morn. See, the, the, the poet writes these words, long lay the world in sin and error, pining or longing or hoping or hungering for God to do something. And that's you and me that we were created by God to exist in loving community with God and with each other. And yet because of our sin and brokenness, there, the relationship with God and, and oftentimes the relationship with each other is broken. And so the world was weary. Long lay the world in sin and error, pining. But God sent Jesus into the messiness of our world to heal that brokenness and to bring light into the darkness. A weary world can rejoice because of Jesus. It's good news. It brings great joy to all people. And that includes you. And that includes me. And so Jesus entered into our world in the lowliest way possible. And he died in the lowliest way possible. And in his death, he absorbed all of the hatred and all of the violence and all of the darkness that this world could throw at him. 
And in his resurrection, because he didn't stay dead, in his resurrection, he absorbed that and he transformed it into love and forgiveness and light. And each year at Christmas, we remember not only his birth, but his death and resurrection. Because through his death and resurrection, we are invited into God's family. Because Jesus overcame death, he has the power to overcome the things that are bringing death to you and me. Because the grave does not get the last word, and there is more to this life than this life, you and I have been invited to be a part of God's family. That is good news that brings great joy to all people. And it isn't about what you can do to somehow measure up so that you can get to God. The message is an announcement. It's good news. It's here's what God has done to get to you to come to you, to move in your direction. So if you're here today, if you're watching online, if you've never said yes, if you've never said yes to the invitation to be a part of God's family, I want you to know you can do that right now. Just agree with this prayer as we pray this together. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I've walked away from you. And God, I've thought that I've had to somehow measure up and do the right things and live the right way so that I could have a relationship with you. But the, the story of Christmas reminds me, this isn't about me doing the things to get to you. This is about what you've done to come to me. And so I want to say yes to your invitation. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. Make me a part of your family and, and help me to put my trust in you. Help me to follow you and your way of living as best as I know how from this moment on. Thank you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, each year we have the opportunity, and we do this throughout the year, but especially at uh, Christmas, we have the opportunity to celebrate communion together. So on your way in today, you should have received a communion. If you did not receive one and you'd like to participate, just lift your hand, and we've got some ushers that'll get one of these into your hands. Uh, You don't have to be a uh, member here at Westbridge to participate with us, but if you're a follower of Jesus, there's rich symbolism to this. In fact, one of the eyewitnesses writes about this, that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, just before his death and resurrection, he took bread and he broke it and he gave it to his disciples, those who were following him, those who had put their trust in him. And he says to them, this represents my body, which will be broken for you. And he's referring to the way that uh, the next day he will be put to death. And he's talking about the fact that uh, they lived in this sacrificial system where they had to offer sacrifices and do things to get to God. And Jesus is basically saying, we're putting an end to that. I'm going to be the final sacrifice once and for all where you and God are in right standing. And so he said, this represents my body, which will be broken for you. And every time that you receive this, remember that sacrifice. And so together, as we remember the broken body of Jesus, his sacrificial love through his broken body, let's receive the bread together. In the same way, he took the cup and he passed it to his disciples. He said, this represents my blood, which will be poured out for you. Every time that you receive this, remember that sacrifice. It's a new covenant between God and humanity. That God is always with you, that God is in you, that God will work through you, that you always have access to your heavenly father. And so as we remember the sacrificial love of Jesus, through his spilled blood, let's receive the cup together. Let's pray. God, thank you for sending Jesus into our world. Thank you for embracing messes we wouldn't expect you to embrace. 
Thank you, God, for working in ways we wouldn't expect, for working through people we wouldn't expect. And when I look at the messes that I've caused with my own words and with my own actions and with my own heart, I'm so grateful that you would choose to embrace me. And thank you, God, that it isn't about what I have to do to get to you, but what you've done to come in my direction. So we take a moment and we pause. We express our gratitude to you for all that you are and all that you've done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.